Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Alex Tremble, someone who's been super successful building relationships by adding value for others at every opportunity. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I have Alex Tremble. Uh, he is the host of The Alex Tremble Show. Uh, wait till you get to know him. I mean, this is a fellow who's been at the Department of the Interior. He's been at the National Park Service. Uh, he does a, a lot of coaching and training uh, for public servants uh, in the United States, uh, service of the United States government. Um, and uh, uh, he's, he's an incredible guy. And, um, and wait till you see uh, the Alex Tremble show. Check it out. Uh, but wait till you get to meet him. Uh, Alex Tremble, uh, welcome to The Indispensables. You know what? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I, I actually, again, for everyone, unfortunately, everyone can't see your face, but I love seeing your face because you have such a beautiful smile. I'm so excited to be here today. <laughs> oh, well, that is so kind of you. And, 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 and likewise, we had a little chat beforehand and uh, uh, we're, we're already uh, on the way to being friends, I certainly hope. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, how, how did you get to where you are now? You know what? I, I love telling that story because it makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, when I was 23 years old, I was given the opportunity to create and manage the executive leadership development program for the U.S. Department of the Interior. Why they allowed some 23-year-old kid to do that makes absolutely no sense. Um, but you don't lick a gift horse in the mouth. You just kind of do it. From that opportunity, I was I had the opportunity to not only grow and teach executive leaders, but I grew and learned and was coached by executive leaders, some of the government's most senior level executive leaders at that time in my life. And honestly, that's, that's kind of what really put me on my career trajectory because really early on, I had the opportunity to just watch what good leadership looks like and also what bad leadership looks like. <laughs> right. And, and, and it, it, I know you've written some books about leadership, uh, Reaching Senior Leadership, uh, 10 growth strategies every government leader should know uh, is, is does that that comes right out of your experience of good leadership and bad leadership. It comes out of my, a lot of different experiences. One, the, the good leadership and bad leadership. Um, and two, uh, you learn that you don't need to do everything yourself um, because I've developed this phenomenal network of leaders. I actually partnered with a number of individuals to write this book and did bring different perspectives. So because everyone learns differently. So like when you read this book, you're yes, there's always me in every single chapter, but also you get to learn different perspectives from from leaders who are are like professional professors, people who are executives, people who are specifically, I have this one guy, he's freaking phenomenal. Um, he wrote the book, Build Your Reputation. Awesome book. Rob Brown, phenomenal individual. He was known, uh, I actually learned about him through a book I had read from uh, John Maxwell. Maxwell was talking about him. And really quick side note, this is why I say, I love talking about networking because networking is so much easier than what people like to think. I met this phenomenal individual by literally sending him an email. I read his book. I'm like, this is freaking awesome. And let me see if I talk to him. And he's like, yeah, we started having a conversation. I'm like, hey, you know, uh, I'm writing this book. Would you be interested? And he said, sure. 
<laughs> and so that's how I got him as a part of the book. Like, please, everyone, if the one thing you can take from this, if you want to do something, just try it. <laughs> just try it. So you, you, you make yourself available. You reach out to people. You give them Absolutely. the opportunity to make the relationship. You know, I, I tell people, like, you know, when we were, we we're talking about networking and relationship building. So FYI, so my emphasis area generally falls into influence, um, whether that be building relationships, um, political savvy and really navigating difficult and complex relationships. Um, and that's actually why I started the Alex Trimble show, because I wanted to help everyone else who didn't have the opportunity to kind of be around these senior level leaders to hear from them what worked for them and what didn't work for them. So, you know, it's a mentoring really really awesome mentoring. What I learned is that everyone kind of does this analysis in their head about if I ask this person to to meet with me or speak to me, it's like a cost benefit analysis. That person's so smart. They're so busy. They're so important. They're not going to have time for me. Um, and they do this cost benefit analysis and they say, okay, it doesn't make sense. Why am I going to waste my time in doing that? But what they don't consider is what is the cost for that individual to say no? See, generally speaking, when you're in a leadership position, when you're quote unquote successful, you think highly of yourself. You don't want to think like you're an a-hole. And if someone's coming to you for help, what does it look like for you to say, nah, I'm not going to talk to you? So like, they're actually more likely to say yes than you think, just because at the bare minimum, they want to keep their own persona of being someone who helps other people. Yeah, it's 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 like the Dale Carnegie uh, principle of Give somebody uh, something to live up to. Give somebody a reputation to live up to. But here, I mean, you sort of started out in this uh, um, enviable position at, at, at the young age of 23. You're in this uh, really a leadership development role at the Department of the Interior. How long were you at Interior? Well, uh, I did three years or three and a half years um, doing executive leadership development. And then I went on to also take over a government-wide leadership development program, two in D.C., one in Denver. From there, I, uh, I ended up meeting the U.S., the, the former director of the National Park Service. And I was just, again, I'm, I'm all about networking. So I met him and I was like, hey, I'd love to talk to you. And he said, sure. So about a month later, got on his counter, walked into the room. It's actually a funny story. So I walked into the room, um, you know, me again, probably 25, something like that at this time. Walked into the room, with this massive room with the director sitting there and two very senior level executives. Um, and they're, everyone's taking their things very, very seriously. Um, they asked me, what would I do about these problems? They give them some suggestions, so on and so forth. Um, about 15 minutes into the meeting, um, the director offers me a job. He says, hey, would you like to work with us? I was like, absolutely. I'd love to work with you. So that's from my perspective. The funny part is from their perspective. So I found out like six months later, the director actually completely forgot who I was. He just knew that he had said this guy can get on his calendar. And then everyone assumed because who has the gall to go meet with the director? He must be some political insider. He must be someone of significance. So let's make sure he gets in the calendar. They had briefing documents for me. They had all this stuff really set up. And it wasn't until I was in the meeting and was talking, they, they realized, oh, shoot, he's looking for a gig. And, you know, we don't know exactly what we're going to do with him. But if he has the confidence to come into the room and meet with the director and, and put his ideas forward, we want him. And that's when they made the decision to just find a way to get me on. And and they must have really been impressed with what you had to say. Yes. Yes. You know, and this is what it comes down to doing that pre-work. Right. So I, I actually met with uh, an NPS employee like maybe 
a week before the meeting and just kind of asked him, what were the biggest challenges that MPS was dealing with? And so I had some ideas in my head. This is how we kind of solve it. And I walked in the room and what was the first thing? I asked them what their challenges were. How can I help them? When you're building relationships, it's not about how other people can help you. It's how can you provide value to other people? And that's why I said, what are your biggest challenges? They put them out there. And did I have a solution, an ironclad solution for everything they threw at me? Absolutely not. But I could tell them, you know, the process, I would do some analysis. I would get a group together. We would make sure there's different opinions as we come to the table. Like just understanding, being confident on what I did know and how to move forward. That is what sold it. And yeah, I'm sure that they were impressed with your authenticity and with your sort of eagerness to, to uh, plug in and add value. A- absolutely. And so I, I'm going to really quickly ask you and your audience a question. And I don't put you on the spot, so you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Um, think about someone who you care about. So someone you, you really care about. Let's say you love that person, mother, father, whoever it may be. You got that person in your mind? Yes. Everyone got it. Okay. So let me ask you the question. Is that person important to you? Is that person close to you because they give you stuff? No, no, not really. I mean, she gives me love. She gives me support. She gives me, she gives me a lot of, um, I don't know if they're not things. Yes, exactly. You're see, look, you're like literally like one in like 1000 who get that answer, right? People like people who give them things, who give them stuff, right? The stuff being, you know, the broader sense. If she didn't give you love, if she didn't give you time, she didn't give you her affection, if she didn't give you, um, uh, if she didn't give you advice or allow you to give her advice, if she didn't give you things, there wouldn't be a relationship there. No, no, but she she gives me challenge. She gives me positive feedback. She gives me difficult feedback. But I I, I thought you meant like stuff. Look, you know, my biggest tool when I give people stuff, I give them my ear. You, you, I love that because I'm not wealthy. I'm not I'm not rich. I don't have access to all the resources in the world, but I do have access to my ear. And you know what many senior level uh, managers don't have is someone they can trust and they can talk to about anything. Someone who's not going to judge them and someone who's not going to share what they share with them with someone else. And that's how I've built so many relationships. Just being the, the person that someone that these leaders can come talk to and they know it will never get out. Again, there's many different things you can give people. I used to, when I ran my leadership development programs, I would give people books. After I did a course, I would have a book and I would say, hey, you know, I was thinking about you. I got this book signed for you. It, it lets people know that you're thinking about them. And so I just, I, I love asking that question. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. And, and you know, or what, what does somebody give you? It doesn't have to be stuff, right? Mm-hmm, but I, mm-hmm. and I like, uh, uh, give someone your ear, uh, give someone your trust and confidence. Give somebody the opportunity to to trust you and have confidence in you. Um, and and so uh, so so this actually happened though. So this fella who um, I, I assume is a fella who uh, yes. was at the National Park Service. Uh, I love the National Park Service and the Forest Service. Uh, I often like to tell people about this very famous park ranger who's a bear, uh, who's a talking bear. Uh, I love telling foreigners about that. Anyway. I'm, I'm always talking about Smokey. Please don't but, say Smokey, because uh, you know it's not Park Service. Oh, I know. That's Forest Service. Service. Oh, I know. I know. But he is a park ranger. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but I've worked with the, with the Park Service also. But um, so how long did you work for the Park Service? Shoot. 
So the first go I, over. So first I went over there and oversaw um, national youth employment programs, National Park Service. We employ, you know, seven, eight, 10,000 youth annually, depending on what the budget is there and so forth. And so I managed those programs for about three and a half years. Um, and then I was asked to serve as the chief of staff for the National Capital Parks East, which is the one of those complex, politically complex parks in the national park system. And I did that for three years. Can you explain why that is just for people who are uninitiated? Oh, please. Thank you for asking that. So National Capital Parks East is in the D.C. area. Okay, what else is in the D.C. area? We have the mall. The mall is this beautiful place that everyone cares about. And, you know, because everyone cares about it, it gets all the resources. Now, my mall friends don't i'm hating on you a little bit but don't come after me they get all these beautiful resources right well you know we have just as much land as the national actually much more than the national mall but because we're next to the national mall all the resources go there you got to think about dc is a a microcosm of the entire country so where many parks have maybe one senator to deal with possibly two maybe one two three representatives we have all of them because all of them are here in our backyard doing work. They walk around, they see stuff. So everyone wants to call and everyone believes they have all the power in the world. So that's why everything in the DC area becomes much more politically complex because there's there's media, like we have CNN, we have everyone right there in our backyard looking for something to go wrong. Yeah, so it's in DC. And of course you've got, um, you've got the park police, you have your own police force. Yes, federal law enforcement. Yep. Uh, and it just, I mean, I think, uh, just when people understand, oh, right, it's in D.C., that's what this guy's talking about. So that's no small thing. Mm-hmm. So you're chief of staff uh, in this outfit. Um, and, and at this point, you're how old? Oh, my goodness. You're, you've got me over here dating myself. So I ended up becoming chief of staff. Oh, my God. I became chief of staff when I was 29 or 28, well, somewhere around there. And <laughs> so this is and this is when when was all this happening? So I, I went over to serve as chief of staff in 2014, actually. So here you are, and you're there for how long? Three years. And uh, and and that is a heck of a high-profile role to have in the National Park Service. Man. So anyone who, who's, if you've never served as a chief of staff, you, you'll never understand the pain and anguish. You're, you're in a role where literally your job is to know something, a lot of something about everything, because your your job is to one, serve your principal and make sure your principal's agenda gets pushed out. But also you have to make sure you're removing barriers for everyone across the organization. So you have to know about maintenance. You need to know about law enforcement. You need to know about resource management. This is in the park service standpoint, but if a chief of staff anywhere has all these things you have to worry about. Um, so much so, so there's actually a little support group for chiefs of staffs in the D.C. area where they come together and like talk like, oh, my God, they're killing me over here. Right. Because every senator has a chief of staff. Every member of the House has a chief of staff. Uh, all of the, the agency heads have a chief of staff. Yep. Right. And so so it's like, you know, where could you have a chief of staff support group <laughs> outside of Washington, D.C.? <laughs> Good, great point. Great point. Hey, you know, those conversations are so interesting because, you know, just in my time there, I met so many wonderful individuals. But what you learn is like, is honestly, it's a, it's a burnout job. Um, it's a, it's a, it is a burnout job because you have your cell phone on you all the time because if anything happens, you need to address it. Um, and that's why I did my three years. And at that point, I was like, 
I'm ready for something else, you know, <laughs> ready for an, another go. I was shortly after that offered an opportunity um, to serve as the chief culture officer for the American Conservation Experience. And this is a phenomenal organization. It's the second largest national conservation corps in the country. We take youth, young adults, sorry, young adults from across the country and push them, you know, whether it be interns or crews, and, and they do conservation work, which is this absolutely amazing what these young adults do um, in our on our public land. So I, I absolutely love the job and I'm loving what I'm doing right now. And it had to be a, a tough time to do that, not just because of the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, I know that uh, the resources being allocated to national parks, the attention being paid, you know, I know from my own work with um, NPS, there was a lot of uh, pain and people were very frustrated by the kind of doublespeak uh, that was coming out of the Department of the Interior for, for a number of years, the, the kind of under-resourcing of, of the parks. And, and so was your nonprofit trying to gap fill? And is that part of what you guys were doing? I wasn't with the nonprofit back in that time frame. I came, uh, I actually started with ACE just now three or four months ago. Um, but that's exactly what they do. Work with the federal agencies to see, okay, where do you not have the resources? Um, and what, what really important work do you need to get done? And let us come in with these young adults and do this stuff for you. Because it works really well. These young adults have the opportunity to grow their skills and um, get certifications in some instances. They have the opportunity to, to build relationships and networks and actually have real professional experience. And then the government has, they win because they get the work done that we generally speaking are not funded to the level that we need to be funded at. Um, and that's just a reality. Again, I'm, I want to be careful, but you know, there's a book, I can't remember what it's called, maybe it's called Governance. And it basically says, like you know, everyone talks about how the government keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But when you actually look at it from a number standpoint, the budget of the government hasn't really stayed in line with what the government is being asked to do. So we have more and more and more and more, more responsibilities and we're getting a little bit of extra money. Right. And so at some point, like people, people love to talk about how, you know, you do more with less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. At some point, you need to do less with less. You need to do less with less, because if you don't, then you're just doing more with less quality. And that's not what the American people deserve and or want. I mean, I'm one of these people who I've worked enough with public servants. I know that they're truly mission driven people who work at the National Park Service. You don't go work at the National Park Service to get rich. Mm -hmm. uh, you go work there <laughs> because you have um, a belief in the mission. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and, uh, you know, the great conservationist, um, I think, would be very disappointed to see how some of his. Uh, People who, who claim to uh, admire him uh, are treating our national lands. You, you know, it's and here's my and this is my rub. This is why. So I've been asked a, a lot. Um, why do I do so much work with the public sector? I'll, I'll be real with you. Like I, I do speaking a lot of different places, I do training for a lot of different places. But I do focus a lot of my time and energy on the public sector. And that's because they are generally so focused on the mission and almost to a detriment because I've met so many public sector leaders who 
they, they, they want the mission to be done. They want it to be reached. Yes, yes, yes. And I said, what about you? What about your goals? What about your aspirations? Well, I don't want to be selfish. Let me just focus on the mission. But what about you and your family? Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to look in, I don't want to be one of those, those slimy people. No, I'm going to focus on the mission. You can do both. You can be a great leader and focus on doing great things within the government, focusing on the mission, and you can get promotions and you can fight for your career and learn new things and position yourself and your family for new opportunities. And I want to get into uh, the work you're doing as as a career coach, uh, as as a leadership expert. But I also uh, want to learn more and want to help people learn more about the Alex Tremble show when we come back. Uh, So we're going to take a little break um, and we'll come back with Alex Tremble. Hi, my name is Chris DeFirio and I run a coffee podcast called Keys to the Shop. But it's not just a podcast to give insights, inspiration and tools for success to coffee shop owners and operators, but it's a place where we discuss concepts, best practices, and topics that apply widely to the world of small business. So not only do we bring in coffee experts to talk with us on the show, but we bring in outside coffee industry experts, like for instance, our friend Bruce Tulgan, whose work I constantly recommend to my listeners and clients, and has been a frequent guest on our show. So whether you're drinking uh, coffee, tea, or whatever, you can follow us on Instagram at keys to the shop. And of course, find out more over at our website, keys to the shop.com. I hope you give keys to the shop. a listen and that what you hear there will help you in your professional development. And of course, give you keys to the shop. We are back with Alex Tremble. Uh, he is the host of the Alex Tremble show. Uh, tell us about the Alex Tremble show. Well, the Alex Tremble show is a show that everyone needs to listen to, period. No explanation. Just go listen to it. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I love when people ask me that question because um, it really comes from a place of passion. As I said earlier on, I I was blessed in that my career started off working with and working next to some of the government's most senior level executives. And in that opportunity, I then also had the opportunity to meet and be mentored by many executive leaders across multiple sectors because that was the realm I, I hung in. Um, and what I learned is that 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 mentoring was so important and critical for my development to where I am today. But unfortunately, so many people don't have the opportunity that I had to be around these people, to learn from these people, for these people to pour into them. So I actually it was COVID that started this. I said, you know what? I want to provide an opportunity to connect my network of leaders with individuals who want to grow, who want to progress in their career, who want something better for themselves and want to learn a different perspective. Um, so I just start, I initially started off, you know, just interviewing some, uh, I knew a few mayors, I knew a few um, uh, council members, knew a few executives and started, you know, getting them lined up. Who's your, uh, your, your, some of your lead off guests? Oh, shoot. One of my lead off guests is actually the um, the current director for transportation and traffic for the city of Charleston, South Carolina. Keith, he's freaking awesome. Another one was one thing, one of the first was the the mayor of Victorville, California. I think it's Jim Cox. Um, and another one, sorry, and now I'm riffing. Um, but another one is Linda, Dr. Linda Singh. She was the former, recently now former, adjutant general for the state of Maryland. They shared so much great information in these episodes. It was just amazing. And so I, I can I can keep calling off episodes that you need to listen to. But as the recording of this one, this is now this is 
August 19th, okay, this is August 19th, I just released this morning a ridiculously insightful conversation with a, a man named Mick Malloy. He is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Middle Eastern Affairs for the Department of Defense and the current National Security Analyst for ABC News. And we had a very, very interesting conversation about what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And I promise you what he shared in this episode, you will not see in the news. Um, so I'm, I'm encouraging everyone to go to the Alex Trimble show dot com or to wherever they get their podcast, Google, wherever where, you know where the podcast for here. Um, but you need to listen to that episode. Yeah, it's uh, so. So you're really bringing public servants, leaders from the public sector, onto your show uh, to share their experiences, to share their insights. And uh, are you also bringing on executives from the private sector? Absolutely. Um, I have a number of CEOs who've actually been on the show and shared some really phenomenal information. There is one individual who I would love to share, but I haven't haven't confirmed confirmed him just yet. But this this woman is phenomenal, a massive, massive CEO. When when it gets announced, every, everyone will know who she is and where she's from. Um, but that's doing that's really well. And from tomorrow, I'll be interviewing the um, the national spokesperson for the RNC. And I'll be then trying to get the, the people from the Democratic side. Like, I love this space because the space I have is all about leadership and all about growth. It is not Democrat is not Republican, not independent. It is how did these individuals move into these these places and how were they not only successful, because that's one thing, but how do you remain successful in these places? And that's what I love talking about. Yeah. And is that also kind of the thrust of your coaching and leadership training? Absolutely. So I have, I have a pet peeve and my, my wife hates this because we need to go to the store, get we got to get and get out. I'm not someone who's like perusing around the store. There's a purpose or a reason for it. Um, that then now goes to training as well. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I believe too many trainings are just like going to the store at my wife. I hope she didn't hear this. You're just doing something. You're learning a random skill. Okay, yeah, you can do some conflict management. Yeah, you know how to do some more communication. Yeah, you can. But what is that? What's the purpose? Is the purpose for you to learn that skill or is the purpose for you to be promoted? Is the purpose for you to go into leadership? And if there's a purpose, if the purpose is for you to go into leadership, then you shouldn't just be learning how to crucial conversations. You need to understand how to how, how to use those skills, when to use those skills, where to use those skills, what are the political implications of those skills? The example I love to use is the difference between teaching someone when you're teaching them to play chess, right? You can tell them the, the pawn can go up two, the pawn can go up one, or the queen can go to the side. You can tell them that, but that's not strategy. They're not going to win the chess game by knowing that information. You need to teach actual strategy. And that's what I like to do in my trainings is teaching, yes, there's these skills, but how, when, where, and why do you need to use them? So are you trying to plug into people's ambitions and aspirations and help them uh, navigate the day-to-day -day tactical reality of their working lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, this is, I think it's, it's due to our society, um, kind of demonizing this word. And it's, our, it's our movies. It's kind of almost everywhere. It's politics. Ooh, it's evil. Politics are evil. No, politics are reality. Not big P politics, small P politics. There, politics is nothing more than 
um, relationships and how we work with one another. And the reality is there are things you can do to increase your success and there's things you can do to decrease your success. I like to teach my clients and everyone who's in my trainings how to increase your success. And that's not just using some you know willy-nilly things that make you make, make, make you feel good, but I like to use science. And so everything I do is based off of research and, and data that's been tested. And again, not only from the data world, but also again, talking to all these leaders and saying what exactly works and why does it work and then teaching how do you implement it to your life. I went to this conference, uh, John Maxwell conference. If you can ever go, awesome conference. If- well, I love John Maxwell. I often say when, when, I, when I, you know, that uh, uh, he doesn't come into rooms like this because his brain is so big. I don't know how he, how he could fit his head in here. <laughs> If, so, yeah, so, yeah, so anyone who hasn't gone, like if you go to this conference in person, I don't know what the, how the virtual one is. He has this thing. He always they talk about always over delivering, always over deliver. When I left this conference, I was like, dude, like I learned so much. Now, when I say I learned so much, what did I what am I talking about? Am I talking about just the leadership skills? No. Am I talking about just the the communication skills they teach? No. Just the coaching skills? No. What I did when I was there is I watched their organization. I want to be like that one day. Let me see how this person moves. How are they selling their books? How are they doing that? Like I said, you need to be, you can't, if you want to be successful, you can't just be looking at what everyone else is looking at. You got to be looking at the fine details and saying, hey, that, why did that person say that? Why, why did they use that phraseology? Did, did, did they support that? Why did they support that? Actually, if I can, real quick story, one of my, uh, my mentor, I love, I love, I love, I love what he did when I was growing up with him. He said he took me to every single executive level meeting he could. And after that meeting, we come back to his office and sit down and we talk about that meeting. Now, the obvious thing to talk about is, OK, what happened? OK, what needs to happen now? What, what are our next steps? That's the obvious stuff. But what was so pivotal in my life is he said, okay, now let's talk about the politics. So this person didn't support that because they're actually working on another program over here and they need this other person's support. It, they didn't say it, but they all they all know it. Or this, you know, it was everything that was happening below the surface, behind the scenes that he taught me how to pick up on and manage. And that's why, again, I love teaching in my courses is all that political savviness, which is understanding what is being said when it's not overtly being said. Yeah. And so is that the sort of thing that you teach? Like the GPS guide to success, is that is that the kind of thing that you teach? Oh, absolutely. 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 So the GPS guide to success, I, I love that because that was my first book. I did that when I was in like 2013, I think it was published. I mean, that is really about how to one, identify your goal and then be very strategic about getting there. And that's extremely, extremely important. I always tell people that if I ever get the opportunity to uh, to meet uh, Simon Sinek, him and I may have have words because <laughs> right before I published my book, he published his book. I think it's like five whys or something like that or why. Yeah, it's a, a lot about why. <laughs> yeah, it blew up, right? I was like, that was in my book. And then I took it out. Come on, I, I, you don't know your plagiarism, but him and I may have words. Now that was the first book. Um, but what I what I teach now is what I call the C4 strategic networking strategy. And really, honestly, I'm, I'm going to start broadening this out because I just did a course on negotiations using C4. I just did a, an, another course on um, customer service using C4. So it's very applicable and really about building relationships in a relatively short period of time. The first C stands for mindset change. Uh, I say mindset changes because if you think utilizing strategies and utilizing whatever techniques that we teach you on how to build relationships and navigate those difficult relationships, if you think that's going to make you a slimy person, a sleazy person, it's going to make you a bad person, it doesn't matter what we teach you because you'll never do it. 
<laughs> then the, the, the second C is internal clarity. Now, again, most people think about when we're talking about relationships and networking, I can focus on the other person. Absolutely not. You, the next person you got to focus on is you. You got to understand what are your goals? What are your aspirations? What resources do you have access to? Think about it going um, going on a trip. How are you going to plug in the destination? How are you going to go to your, your end destination if you don't have an address? You have to first understand where you want to go and what you need. So you know who to reach out to. So you know what resources you can bring to the table. So you know what makes, you know, what environments make you nervous or anxious. So maybe you can avoid those environments. Like, so internal clarity is the second one. The third is external clarity. Now, external clarity is talking about the other person. Who are those people? Where are they at? Who are their friends? Who are their enemies? What organizations are they typically in? When you're learning about those individuals, I love talking about the PPF strategy, which is understanding their personal, what are their personal goals? What are their professional goals? What are their financial goals? If you can find out one or all three of those, that gives you an opportunity to do exactly what we were talking about earlier, Bruce, which is add value to people. Again, add value to people means you're adding value that they want, not, <laughs> not that you want. So understanding that. So once you have external clarity, then you move on to behavior choice. Now, behavior choice is the one everyone loves to talk about. Okay, I'm going to shake your hand. Let me look you in the eye. I mean, I'm going to zigzag the room so people see my face. Those are all those things that you learn on YouTube and those those very high level, quote unquote, networking classes because they're they're the behavioral things. But let me tell you this real quick. If you don't have a mindset change, it doesn't matter what we teach you what to do because you won't do it. If you don't have internal clarity, who are you going to be networking with? It can be random people. So you need to understand what your goals are, where you need to end up being. If you don't have external clarity, if you don't understand who now it is you need to be meeting and where they're at, how are you going to shake someone's hand if you don't know where they're at? If you can't get, get in the room with them. So all those, those first three are so important to hit in that order. First mindset change, then internal clarity, external clarity, then behavior choice. And so that I, I have a number of trainings that are built specifically on that, that strategy. And, and so the behavior choice is the sort of how you conduct yourself, how you interact with people. And I, I, I love that you, you, you start with the mindset change, but I love that because um, I, I, I think that's very savvy. There's a real insight there because um, I think a lot of people don't realize how much their own kind of queasiness about being ambitious, their own queasiness about their aspirations, their own kind of self-doubt about asserting themselves, there must, there's like a dynamic between that and the internal clarity, right? Because you don't have to accept what's inside right away, right? Maybe, maybe you go back and forth between the internal clarity and the mindset change, because maybe when you get to the internal clarity, you realize, uh, you know, I, I don't feel right about this. And you have to go back and no, no, uh, uh, Alex said, you got to change your mindset first. Yeah. And that's why it's in this order. You are so absolutely right. And again, I love talking about all these different strategies, again, whether it be the in online classes or in my, my, my speeches or workshops, or again, we, a lot of this, we talk about a lot of these different things um, on the podcast right now. So you can find it on the podcast actually, or you can find it on, on YouTube is the Alex Trimble show. Um, but yeah, those are great places to find information and more on this. For those of you who are hearing this for the first time, there will be a point in the not too distant future, I'm guessing, uh, where you will have to try hard to not see the Alex Tremble show. I am blessed. And if, if I can share with you personally, um, this last week, um, 
I have had a number of my mentors, actually specifically six of my mentors, separate conversations, all challenge me saying, Alex, you're dreaming too small. <laughs> you're, you're dreaming way too small. Just given the 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 opportunities that may be coming up in the near future, it, it's going to be crazy. So I'm, I'm please, I'm looking forward to everyone to be along with the on, on, along for the ride. The other thing I do on the YouTube channel, though, which is different than the podcast, is I share a lot of very quick uh, moments of advice. So that normally like five, six, sometimes three minutes long. Um, and the last one I just posted this past week was honestly just about that. What my mentors challenged me on is if you whatever. Whatever dream you have in your head, whatever expectations you have for your career, it's small because <laughs> our dreams, our, our, our thoughts are all based off of what we can experience and what we what we've experienced, what we can see in our own minds for our own selves. But if you haven't experienced those greater things, then, then you haven't been exposed to that stuff. I love to say what, what, what I think is exceptional is probably everyday stuff to Oprah. <laughs> what I think is exceptional, which I think is big and hard. Jeff Bezos is like, yeah, yeah, I did that last week. Like that's what, and that's why you have to be around exceptional people because those exceptional people will open your mind to new ideas and opportunities. Like the, the mentors I have are always challenging me to do better. And because they challenge me, they like one woman, she, she literally told me, Hey, my supervisor makes 3.1 million a year. Alex, you need to do that. Another person who I know um, literally just told me, hey, I'm friends with the the former CEO of Goldman Sachs. Do you need a connection? This is the people who I put myself around because those individuals can open my mind. Like, oh, I never thought of making that much money a year. I never thought of being friends with this person. Please, please, please put yourself around exceptional people and just watch how your life changes. Yeah. And those exceptional people, I think you would agree, don't have to be zillionaires or celebrities Right. They're exceptional people uh, of all shapes and sizes and all walks of life. Um, But it is true that people look at somebody like a Bezos or an Oprah um, who seem larger than life. They seem kind of unreachable. Uh, And and by the way, you know, uh, because of the pressures of celebrity and wealth, not that they're not pressures we could figure out a way to, you know, get used to, but, but, you know, because of that, they, they are hard to get to, they are hard to get to, uh, and hard, you know, probably harder to get to, uh, uh, than, than the head of the national park service even. And there's something about seeing yourself as, uh, somebody who, Hey, you know, I want to be around these people. Maybe they want to be around me. Um, and cause they are just human beings. They, that, that's the thing. I love that you just said that. They are human beings. Um, again, because of because again, I was blessed to start my career off working with executives. They it was just, hey, that's Tom, that's that's Sally. But when when other people saw me, like, oh my God, that's that's the executive. Yeah, they're, they're, we talk about we we go out for drinks. We talk about it's like, they're human. Like these Oprah's human. All these people are human. So when I say ex- ex- exceptional, again, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not talking about just money. Um, Because there are probably there. I know there are, quote unquote, people who are super rich um, and are not exceptional. <laughs> they, they, they could be horrible people with horrible ethics and they're never good at anything. Yeah, they right. They, they might be scoundrels. You know, they might be bullies. Uh, they might be people who are scoundrels and bullies and manage to somehow convince a shocking number of people to to trust them. And, and yet they're not people we want to uh, uh, be like or admire. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just looking, you're looking for people 
who are exceptional at what they do. And so they may be, you may want to, like, I, I believe in Franken mentorship. I coined this when I was really young. That's why it sounds like that. But Franken mentorship, like I've never had one mentor. Um, I've always had many mentors and a mentor for every aspect of my life that was important to me. So I have a mentor who's exceptional at being a father. I get to talk to him. I, I'm not a father yet, unfortunately. And I hope my wife and I hope to be able to have a kid soon. But I get to talk to him about fatherhood and I trust because he's exceptional. At I have a friend who's a mentor who's exceptional in politics, who's exceptional in government, who's exceptional in coaching and programs. And now you know, I just found an, uh, a mentor who's exceptional in TV and those media things. So that's where I'm trying to move into with the show. Just find people who are exceptional at the areas of your life that you want to grow in. And I, I promise you again, you'll, you'll see changes. There's tremendous wisdom in what you're saying. And, you know, there's a seminal article, uh, I think from the early 90s by Linda Hill, who's a, a brilliant, brilliant woman. And uh, she's a professor at the Harvard Business School. And she wrote this, uh, this great piece called The Myth of the Perfect Mentor. And, and, and the research uh, that she tunes into, it's, it's less common that you see somebody who's a perfect mentor. It's much more common that you see somebody who's great at being a protege great at being a mentee, great at attracting mentors, um, and that it's very common that you see somebody who's really, truly exceptional. Not that there aren't people who, who, who thrive on being mentors and, and excel, especially at mentoring others, but you're kind of the, the, uh, a great example of what she was trying to get across, which is, you know, some people are just really good at, at turning people into mentors. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so one, I, I, I encourage everyone to head to alextrumble.com, uh, actually. You'll, you'll, there's a course on mentorship there, actually. I, I, one of my favorite stories is um, my mentor, who is this very well-connected political woman. I still remember having a conversation. So I was in a meeting with her, again, very young in my life. I was in a meeting with her, this table with all these executives. And um, she's talking. And I'm like, oh, my God, this woman is ridiculous. She's so impressive. And this young lady looked next to her, look, looked over to her after the meeting ended. And she said, um, Madam, um, would you be my mentor? And the, the lady said, I'm so sorry. I'm really busy. I, I really don't take on mentees right now. I, I just really don't have the time for it. And in my head, I was like, no, 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 you're going to mentor me like that. That's not a question. And so what I started doing is just started finding reasons to meet with her. Oh, I need to ask you a question about this, ask you a question about that. And then we went to a few um, uh, mystics game because she loves basketball. Over time, I just kept being there, around her so often that she actually invited me to this gala, this, this senator's gala, and she introduced me as her men, as her mentee. And I told her about that after years later. I'm like, you know, I, I, I walked you into this. She's like, yeah, no, you, you got me. So you don't have to ask someone to be your mentor. They don't even have to know that they're mentoring you. Just watch them. Ask questions. Be interested. Um, they may, yeah, maybe one day it becomes a formal title, sure. But if not, you can still learn from them. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes, <clears throat> when our corporate clients will ask, you know, hey, what about mentoring? And my view is that there are lots of developmental relationships. You can have a teaching or a coaching style manager. You can have an organizational supporter. You can have a friend who's got a lot of insight. Um, but, but, you know, mentoring is something you know more in retrospect. Like you look back and think, hmm, wow, yeah, this person has been a mentor to me. And, and, and I think sometimes when companies try to create a mentoring program, 
you know, and they'll, they'll, okay, well, this is going to be your mentor. And, you know, especially with today's young people, they're like, oh, you're going to be my mentor. Huh? We'll see about that. I think it's, it's, it, there's more traction in teaching people how to be mentees, teaching people how to be proteges, teaching people how to win lessons uh, from, from more experienced people. Absolutely. I mean, really seriously, and I, I want everyone to make sure that they're listening when I say this, the responsibility for a mentor mentee relationship is on the mentee. And, I, and that's the thing you have to remember. I've, I've met so many people who are upset because their mentor didn't respond back to their email or didn't respond back to their text or they were busy. They had a council meeting. Yeah, they're, it's OK. They're busy. Don't take don't take it to heart. Just, you know, find another time. It's, it's not that serious. Um, I used I actually had um, an individual who I used to mentor get really upset with me and actually uh, killed the relationship off because um, this individual wanted me to this individual wanted to help me. I really appreciate it. But there was nothing that I needed from that person at that time. And so when this person kept offering things and I was like, no, thank you so much. But here, let me help you. Let me introduce you to this person. Like I'm helping. But one day they said, you know what? You don't appreciate anything I'm giving you. We don't need to have this relationship anymore. But I, I just didn't, I just didn't need it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, look, uh, uh, and, and not everybody is a natural fit, right? With each other, right? So people who are regular listeners uh, of, of uh, the podcast here or people who know my work, you know, I'm a lifelong martial artist. And, you know, martial arts is very, especially traditional martial arts is very mentor focused, very teacher focused, sensei focused. Um, I have the same teacher I've had since I was seven years old. So uh, for 47 years, uh, he lives here with us uh, for the last six years. But, but this is a relationship, you know, in retrospect, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to announce to somebody, I'm going to be your mentor or to announce to somebody, I want you to be my mentor, I think um, is it, it, it's, it's awkward. It is, though. It really is, though. <laughs> I've had many people ask me to be their mentor um, and it is it never feels right. I always feel, well, here's the thing. I used, I, I've run and developed many mentoring programs. And as you know, like when you're looking for mentees and, ment and mentors, you'll get like a thousand mentees and like two mentors. And it's not because people are trying to be DICKs. It's because most people just don't feel like they know enough to mentor someone. They, 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 it, it, there's, I feel like there's also this, this feeling like now your career is in my hand. I don't want to mess up. Yeah. Or they, right. They don't even, or they don't know. They think they know what it means. They're not sure what it means. You know, I, I think the best way to help an organization create a mentoring program is to do some teaching uh, around how to be a good protege, how to be a good mentee and do some teaching about how to be a good mentor and then, you know, let them find each other. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you on this. You know, somebody like you, who you made reference a little bit earlier in our conversation to uh, conversations you had uh, recently with six different mentors. I mean, you know, that, 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 that that's, uh, you know, ment mentors might be in short supply, but for some people, uh, they're not. And, and, you know, if somebody asked me, hey, would you be my mentor? I'm getting to an age now where I get, get that sometimes, um, you know, and I'll say, well, gosh, you know, I'd be happy to spend time with you. Um, if there's something I can suggest, you know, if you have, want my advice about something where I might have advice, hey, let's see how it goes. We might have some conversations and you might decide you don't even like me. 
You know, one thing I've, I think mentors really appreciate is dreaming big. I just feel like there's so many people. First, you know how you know, it's so easy to be extraordinary and because most people, you know, by definition, ordinary is like the average. So most people are in the average. Most people are ordinary. To be extraordinary is just to do a little bit extra. It's just a little bit more. And that differentiates you from the rest of the crowd. And so what I've found over the years is that what attracts the mentors to me is when I share with them my goals and aspirations and they're big, they're big dreams. I'm really going after some stuff. And it's a, it's a challenge. It's not, oh, I just want to, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to ride out the next 30 years and then retire. Like, no, like that's, that's not what it, and when, when I share these big goals with them, they're like, oh shoot. Okay. Okay. Um, how, how do you plan on doing it? Well, I've thought about this, 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 um, but I'd love to hear your ideas on it. And then it gets, they start getting them thinking and engaged in the situation. So I recommend, I'm a strong, strong proponent of developing and identifying what your goals are. Again, really quickly, goals can change. Please, everyone know goals can change. The point of a goal is not for you to set it in a stone and it's never changed. And that's exactly where you're going to end up in 50 years. No, the point of a goal to me is just a direction to get you moving. And once you have experiences, you'll say, you know what? I like this or I don't like that. I'm going to change it and go this way instead. I'll tell people, literally, I first, I wanted to be an international consultant. Um, then I wanted to be a house representative and house representative. Then I wanted to be a senator. Then I just wanted to be a government executive. Then I wanted to be a, um, a secretary of a cabinet level agency. And then now I'm planning to having my own talk show. I will accomplish something in the future, something big, but it, May not be exactly one of these five, these six, right? But but what get me going? It, it it provided me a direction to get going and and some motivation, encouragement to go somewhere. And so that kind of internal clarity is a work in progress. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for making that point. It is definitely a work in progress. You're consistently reevaluating your life and what you're doing and what you like about it, and what you don't like about, it, and making tweaks along the way. Like that's how you. That's how you get to where you think you need to be. And reality is, again, I, I know I'm speaking out both sides of my mouth, but again, it's not the goal. It's the journey, right? It's not the destination. It's the journey. I, I did this uh, this hike um, in Grand Canyon a few years back when I was a little better in shape. And I swear, I swear I was going to die. In the Park Service, they, they gave us the opportunity to do this hike down the Grand Canyon back. And they, they, what they do is they really try to scare you into not going because they don't want you to die. A lot of people die in the Grand Canyon if you don't know about this. Um, it's a very difficult hike. <laughs> and so... So they scare you and they like half the class were like, okay, we're not going to go. And so me and this other big guy, we're like, no, we're still going to go. And they say, well, if you can't run a marathon, then you shouldn't hike all the way down to, to the group, to the, to the bottom. And we're like, well, I can't run a marathon. So maybe I'll go halfway. They say, yeah, yeah, go halfway, go halfway. And so, we, okay, we're going to do halfway. So the, the morning of, we wake up, we go start hiking. They said, well, wait, if you're going to go halfway, you might as well also go out to the peninsula. When you're halfway down, like, oh, that, that sounds nice. That sounds really nice. So we go halfway, hike halfway down, which is three miles. Now you got to think all the way down is six miles, right? You get all the way down to the bottom, you sleep for the night, and then you come back up the next morning. So we hike down halfway, three miles. Great. Then we go out to the peninsula, which is a mile and a half out. Then you have a mile and a half back. So now you've already actually done six miles, <laughs> the six miles that takes you to go down. And then you go back up, which is an additional three miles. So now you've done nine miles in one day. 
versus doing six miles down, sleeping, and then coming back up the next day. It made no sense after we were actually hiking it. Like, but on the way back, we were felt like we were gonna die. Like, honestly, I, I was my partner was throwing up. And th- that incline is crazy for anyone who hasn't done it. The incline, the switchbacks in the Grand Canyon is 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 it's it's really rough. Um, and so, you know, every switchback, we would literally stop and sit down because we it was just that hard. I in my mind, I was like, I am not gonna make it. I literally was like, they're gonna have to emer- uh, emergency back me out of here because. I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die. And again, he's throwing up and I'm like, I can't say anything. And we kept pushing. We kept pushing. Finally, we saw some kids and we're like, oh my God, kids means that we must be near the top. And we pushed it and we made it out. And you know what? I love that experience. It was hard. I thought I was going to die. It was a horrible decision, but I love it so much because I, I, I grew myself. I tested how, how what I was able to put myself through to, to reach my goal. And that's the same thing with life. You give yourself some big, difficult goals. Yes, it's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to make you, you know, like your friends are going to be at the clubs and doing crazy stuff while you're out home working, stressed out. But you know what? When you look back on your life and you say, wow, look what I was able to accomplish. This is hard. Yeah, I promise you'll appreciate it. Yeah, and and look, I think it's perfectly consistent to have uh, goals um, and also say it's all about the journey, right? Because the goals keep moving you forward. And again, once if, if 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 you're if you're paying attention, once you hit that goal, which I I I, I doubt that many people actually, if you're dreaming big enough, you're not gonna hit, you're not gonna hit your goal, right? If you're dreaming big, you're not gonna hit a goal. By the time you're almost to your goal, it's gonna change because you've had some sort of experience in life that's gonna make you want to do something a little bit different. Um, but if you ever hit that goal. That's probably the the time to be worried. I I say that because you don't want to hit a goal and say, I'm done. Like that's, that's not good because then you have nothing to work for, no no motivation. You just, you just sit and, and, and and you need to always be progressing and growing. If you look in, you look in the environment, we talked about, started this conversation with the park service. You look in the environment, everything in life is either growing or decaying. If you build something, you build a building. As soon as you stop building it, it starts decaying. You plant a, a you plant a plant. As soon as it starts growing and it stops growing, it starts decaying. So you have to be growing in your life. Otherwise, you start decaying. Yeah, and 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 not only that, but if but but you probably don't even notice it for a while, right? You, so if you're not growing, you're probably decaying. You just don't know it. I, I spoke to the um, a good friend of mine now, the former uh, chief learning officer at the Veterans uh, Veterans Administration. Him and I do some trainings together. And I remember one, one of the things that him and I connected on was the fact that <laughs> for some reason, both of us, like, you know, I was really early in my career. I was young. I was at a, a big name across D.C. as this young guy doing all this work. I thought I was fly. I didn't need to read anything else. I didn't need to go to any trainings. I knew leadership. And for like five years, like almost like four years, I didn't read any or go in any new trainings. I was just doing trains myself. And then I, I took a train and I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And I read another book and I, oh, I, I didn't know that either. And you just keep growing and growing and you feel so much better. And he said the same thing happened in his career. He was at the top of his career. You know, he's an executive in the government. And he's like, I got this. And for like four years straight, just like me, he hadn't read anything. But so he picked up a book. He was like, this, this is good. This makes me feel good. And he started growing and learning again. So again, I encourage everyone just to read. Just please, if you're not reading, do it audible or maybe some YouTube videos, but oh, oh, definitely uh, Bruce's podcast. 
that needs to be consistent. That needs to be like the Bible in, in here. As like the uh, what are the, the four square meals a day? That this needs to be in that in that meal that every, every single day. And the Alex Trumbull Show. Yes, the Alex Trumbull Show dot com. Uh, it's fantastic, Alex Trumbull. You are a force of nature. Thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Bruce. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. If you listen this far, you deserve a big hug and give someone a hug, um, but ask for permission first, please. <laughs> In our next episode, I'll talk with the best-selling author, David Knorr. He's an expert on strategic relationships. Fascinating guy. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.